0: And let's like, uh, let's pre-rig, uh, uh, geez, a cold open, where I just say something outrageous like, Sushi on a Pizza!
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for December 8th, 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan... Oh, jeez. Oh, boy. What are we doing here?
0: Well, what we're doing is giving our deeply felt opinions, telling you the way things are. It's ironclad. There's no room for debate. Just kidding. We're going to go ahead and engage in what we hope to be good faith discussion, where we explore issues from a variety of angles and to hopefully get your feedback as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, we acknowledge that we're only human. We don't know everything. We're not on the ivory tower, which also a couple of listeners have told me that they don't really know what the ivory tower is, which is, in short, it's a philosophical idea that, you know, if you're up on the ivory tower, you know everything. You you are above criticism, and you are infallible, and we do not (laughs) believe that.
0: Yeah, and you're sort of insulated from challenges and other elements of the outside world. You're just above everyone telling them the way it is.
1: Yeah, maybe in the modern era, we should call it the political bubble tower.
0: That's political not as catchy. echo
1: chamber tower of jam. But anyway, Evan, hey, oh, Evan,
0: what That's do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the recent Peloton commercial. It's got everybody up in arms.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I watched this ad 10 minutes ago. What even is going on, Evan?
0: All right. So Peloton, as some of you may know, is an at-home exercise bike. It's very expensive because it comes with its own sort of workout plan and, sometimes live instruction from trainers with their built-in monitor. And uh, from what I understand, it's pretty good, but very, very expensive. And they recently put out this ad that has drawn a lot of backlash on social media. So let me go ahead and recap what this ad is. It's framed around the holiday season where a wife is surprised with a Peloton for Christmas from her husband. From there, she goes through a year of writing this Peloton apparently live streaming her riding this bike or recording a series of short videos it's not quite clear until later what's she's really putting going
1: it on. on her uh, instagram story
0: yeah i <laughs> if you say so <laughs> maybe i don't know yeah so she's riding and uh you know, coming home from work and writing, waking up early in the morning and writing. Uh, at one point, she gets a shout out from the little live Peloton instructor that really makes her geek out. And we learn that her name is Grace. She lives in Boston. It's, it's this personal information that we didn't need to, to tell this story. And then we find that all these videos have been recorded and edited together as a one year benchmark completion video to, I guess, thank her husband for the Peloton, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Narratively, socially, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So the first problem that a lot of people are having with this commercial is what kind of message does it send if you give someone exercise equipment, like that's, there, I feel like there's a little hidden message there that maybe isn't quite what you want to say. And, you know, it's possible that she wanted a Peloton, but we don't ever hear her asking for a Peloton. And when she gets the present, she seems really surprised, like it's not something that she was anticipating. So it seems like the husband on his own was like, nah, my wife needs an exercise bike.
1: Yeah, it does seem weird. Um, when I think of gifts to give people, exercise equipment is not among them unless they're already like a fitness or a fitness freak. And even then, I would be like, oh man, am I just going to give them some bullshit that seems gimmicky? I don't know. <laughs> Buy your own exercise equipment or tell me exactly what you want.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but that's not what's going on in this ad. Another thing that everyone's commenting on is that this actress made some very strange performative choices. There are points as she's going through this year of Peloton where her face just looks so pained. It it looks almost like she's being held prisoner, and that's why people have compared this Peloton ad to a horror movie. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I think if you're trying to sell exercise equipment, uh, drawing comparisons to – get out is not what you are going for to try to sell your bikes.
1: I, mean, I don't know if they're making references to uh get out or horror movies. I mean maybe it was an attempt to portray honest, you know, given honest portrayal of what dedicated fitness is like instead of the all smiles and everybody's fucking happy all the time because they're so cool and exercising. It That's is tough.
0: fair, but here's I guess the the response that eats into that interpretation and it also takes us into the next complaint is that it doesn't seem like the video is very realistic. If it was going for something realistic, then something would probably change over the course of this year. But it's a very thin, conventionally attractive woman who starts, and by the end, she is exactly the same thin, conventionally attractive woman. So if we're wanting to to see the realities of of fitness and weight loss, it it doesn't actually make a lot of sense from the commercial.
1: I mean, maybe maybe that's the target audience, thin, conventionally attractive women just keeping up, being healthy. Who knows? It's a weird brand completely outside anything of, you know, my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, no real uh, no connections there. It did just seem odd. And, and um,
0: another question I want to raise is why is she recording this video? Even though we eventually find out that she's making, I guess, a year long thank you video. When have you ever made a video to thank someone for getting you a gift? It it just seems so contrived. Like this commercial is the only scenario where that would ever happen. It wouldn't happen in nature and i get that commercials don't have to adhere to realism but then a lot of other stuff doesn't make sense
1: it almost seems like a commercial to just have people complain about the patriarchy like oh the man gate or he's a chauvinist he gave her the the bike and then she feels so compelled to make a video over it and it's like who's doing this like maybe in this ad that's what's happening but who's doing this
0: exactly that's the question why is any of this happening who is doing any of this and it's just sort of intersected in this strange quirky video and the last thing i want to talk about and this is purely personal haven't read this anywhere but i think it is bullshit that they have to drag tal bachman's 90s hit she's so high into it that's the song that's playing that's a really good pop song and to see it used in this capacity i find personally offensive
1: well you are certainly entitled to your opinion
0: this isn't my opinion it's my feeling and my feeling is a fact
1: fact feelings
0: fact feelings
1: isn't that uh what adequately informed is all about What is
0: is adequately (laughs) informed about? What does it mean to you? Take one video every day for a year and then send it to us on December 8th, 2020.
1: The the adequately informed challenge where you go and tell people you're in bad faith and just run away.
0: Yeah, never never explain it, never contextualize. It's, It's just about seeming superior. That's what we're doing here. All of this is to say that it just seems like there are a few avenues to success in advertising. Either you can have something that's very sincere, very informative, or comedic, or otherwise memorable in an annoying way, like J.G. Wentworth or Head On. And I think why this commercial has struck such a chord with so many people is because it almost tries to cover all of its bases and doesn't do any of them well. I think it tries to, on one hand, appeal to, as Joe was mentioning, the realistic element of weight loss, but then that only works for a small segment of its viewing audience. And then there's this unintentional horror comedy angle, which the company has not openly endorsed and which clearly has not been well-received to the extent that it's been noticed, And I think that with with modern cultures and modern people being so oversaturated with ads, it's really difficult for an advertiser to pull off an ad campaign that actually engenders the feelings within the public that they want. And it's just really humorous when something falls so hard on its face like this Peloton commercial did.
1: All right. Now, Evan, let's uh, let's big brain this. Okay. what if they meant the ad to be off putting so that you and I talk about it on our illustrious podcast?
0: I'm not going to rule that out. I think that it based on all of the individual factors, I would be absolutely floored if that was the intent, but. It, we are talking about it. We are giving airtime to a literal commercial that is not paying us to do it. And it's had a lot of articles written about it. So intentional or not, I'm sure Peloton is not upset by the additional publicity. And now I feel like a shill.
1: Yeah. It's like, uh, it, it's what Donald Trump figured out. Free media is way more powerful than paid media. Yeah. So if we can, you know, if you can get the people talking, that's that's worth way more than any ad. It's like when uh, Keurig pulled their yeah uh, their ads from the Sean Hannity show. Keurig got way more buzz than it ever would with any ad, because a whole bunch of yokels
0: yeah smashed their <laughs> oh, sh- a-
1: Yeah, I should be a little bit more uh, charitable, but uh, uh, Sean Hannity viewers decided to smash the Keurigs that they had paid for, destroying their own private property. Yeah. So. That was way more publicity than they ever would have gotten from advertising on Sean Hannity's show to begin with.
0: But does it make people want to buy Keurigs?
1: Could have.
0: Put it in your mind. Did this segment make people want to buy a Peloton?
1: You know, if we inspired one Peloton purchase, that'd be something.
0: Did you buy a Peloton because of this uh, segment? Let us know in the comments.
1: Yeah, did any of the 25 of you... Get a Peloton.
0: Yeah, one one Peloton purchase would be 4%. So we could really, you know, we could sell that pretty effectively. Please, please
1: tell us, yeah, we, we need to go to Peloton. Get a, get a, a sponsorship after the fact, after we already <laughs> did it. Yeah, we would like
0: commission. You didn't ask us to do this, but we still expect the payment.
1: So we're growing. Um... <laughs> So yeah, Peloton, yeah. what what a bougie thing to begin with. Like,
0: I mean, I would love to have that type of exercise bike. I just can't, I'm not, I can't see a future where I can afford it. So
1: yeah, it's, it's expensive. So Joe, <laughs> yes, Evan,
0: what do you want to talk about?
1: Oh man, Evan, I feel like we need to, uh, We've been off the hook for a little while. We need to talk about something, something boring, something factual.
0: We don't talk about boring things on this show.
1: Something like the crazy phenomenon that is inflation.
0: Editing a dun, dun, dun sound effect.
1: So inflation, what is it? Well, it's it's quite it's something it's when prices go up without the value of the products going up which is basically to mean that the value of money decreases so the reason i bring this up i saw a number of articles on the economist i know super bougie that talked about how inflation fears are a little outdated. It seems like in the last 10 years, in the United States, Europe, and other developed countries, inflation has been historically low, with uh, countries often falling below their projected goals of inflation. In the United States, the Federal Reserve, sets an inflation goal of about 2%. Now, why is that? Why do we want prices to kind of generally be going up or the value of money to generally be going down over time. Well, from what my understanding is that we we have a goal of trying to hit about 2% inflation because on one hand, high inflation is bad. That means people aren't able to afford the products they need. People are having to get constant raises. There, there's a constant feeling that nobody has enough money to buy the products that they need um, this ex- it happens in countries that fall into a spiral of inflation so like Venezuela now uh, they have rapid inflation nobody's able to buy anything and money is worthless after a few days uh, this has also happened in countries like Zimbabwe who notably issued their 100 trillion dollar note some years ago wow uh, yeah And it was also in the rock band font, which was also cool. Um, So I would love to get my hands on a $100 trillion Zimbabwean note.
0: What's the exchange rate on that?
1: Oh, it's it's worthless now. It's completely worthless, not even a penny. I think I think they also re restructured their debt or their money. So they started back over at like one
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, instead of just going on with the new cur- or the old currency. But regardless, so rapid inflation is bad and sucks. But what also is bad is deflation when the value of money gets stronger over time. Now, why is this bad? Well, it it's because if the value of money... Just by it existing alone gets more valuable over time. People won't spend that money because they believe that over time it'll just become more valuable. And why spend your money now when it's less valuable, when you can get less for your dollar, when in the future you could get more for the exact same dollar? So this is why, uh, this is part of the reason why governments shoot for about... You know, two percent inflation, but the United States has been hovering around one percent inflation, and it's been tough because inflation has a lot to do with long-term debt and investment. So when, uh, so let's say when you're paying back a loan, if the money inflates a lot, then Later on in your loan, it's going to be cheaper to pay it back because the money is worth less. So if you take out a, th- if you took out a thousand dollar loan a hundred years ago, I know that's a small amount for a ridiculously long term, but if you took it out a hundred years ago, that would be a lot of money. But if you were to pay it back today, it'd be nowhere close to the same amount of value as it was a hundred years ago. So. If inflation is low, that means that borrowers, borrowers end up paying more money. And also, we have been in an economic recovery for the last decade. Now, what does low inflation mean with that? Well, with low inflation, that means that the government could have had looser monetary policy and could have done more fiscal stimulus. The reason that they didn't do it was fears of inflation so if you have looser monetary policy this means that there's just more money out in the world and if you do fiscal stimulus that's akin to printing more money sometimes so there's fear that there'll be inflation so with interest rate or with inflation being as low as it has there's a concern that we could have done a whole lot more to make the economic recovery happen and given more money out into the world. And people are like, well, our debt is so huge. Well, yeah, it kind of is. But then also it's a government. And this brings me into the next area. Well, Evan, do you have anything you want to
0: um, have guess any thoughts? I just want to tease out a little bit more of what governments can do to control inflation. Because I think you've mentioned printing more money, but there's also an element of it that has to do with like federal reserve policy, right? Uh, yes.
1: So it seems like from what I've seen and the kind of economics that I understand, it seems to be that the main driver of inflation is what is known as the money supply. So the money supply is, just kind of how much money, uh, physical money, exists out there. The way I like to think of it is when I was a kid, our uh, our little group of neighbor kids, we had uh, this fake money that we had for play that we made out of the bottle caps of the beers our parents drank. Which sounds like uh, <laughs> like living in a broken home now, but you know some parents just drink beer and so every time my dad had a a miller genuine draft the money supply increased by one (laughs) so if there's more money out there then prices will go up now correct me
0: correct me if i'm wrong but the money supply can be controlled also by Lending. So there's things that the Fed can do to encourage banks and other institutions to lend more money. So it's not even necessarily the physical amount of dollar bills in circulation, but the amount of money that is able to be spent through cash and loans.
1: Yes. And it just seems to be that part of the. So also, money. This is a concept that's kind of hard to grasp if you don't already understand it, so I may be failing in my explanatory power. But money is created anytime you loan somebody money. So if a bank loans you for a car and you pay interest on that loan, new money is being created in an economy. This happens whether uh, the... The country prints more money or not. This is creating on the books more money than there was before uh, the loan was made. So that's how inflation naturally happens.
0: And the, the, the policies that go into this, if I recall economics class correctly, are interest rates and reserve requirements. Can you explain those a little bit?
1: Well, interest rates, well, Let's let's go with reserve requirements, because that's one part of it. But it seems like in the modern era, it's not nearly as important as we thought it was. But it's the requirement of how much money banks have to keep in their vault, essentially. So if a bank has 10 million dollars in loans and the reserve requirement is 10 percent, then they have to have a million dollars in the bank um, just as liquidity. They can't loan every single dollar that they have out. So that's that's approximately what reserve requirements are.
0: And lowering the reserve requirement can allow for more lending, which can lead to more inflation.
1: Yeah. And then interest rates... Um, which is the main instrument that the federal reserve uses to deal with inflation is the federal reserve is the bank that banks get loans from a lender of last resort. So the federal reserve rate is the lowest rate money is lent out in the economy. So if a bank can borrow money from the federal reserve at 1% interest rate, then they have to charge more than 1% interest rate to make their money back for borrowing money from the Federal Reserve. So the lower the interest rate, the more money that uh, banks can borrow from the Federal Reserve and then in turn, the more money that people can borrow from banks because of the lower interest rates. If interest rates are high, people aren't going to be able to borrow as much because they'll have to pay back more. So we're in this era with low interest rates, so people can, you know, take on a whole lot of debt, and we've held on to low inflation as well, which is a peculiarity. So there, there is a growing school of thought out there called modern monetary policy, Or modern monetary theory. And it's complicated. And it doesn't even seem like the people who are proponents of it. Really quite get the full grasp on it. But it seems to be that the gist of it that I've gleaned. Is that in an era with low inflation and low interest rates. If a government can make its payments. It can basically take on unlimited debt and since a country like the United States has its own sovereign currency we can never default because we can always just print more money so if we're in a scenario where interest rates are low and inflation is low we can the government can kind of use as much money as it wants now this is untested theory and who knows if interest rates would stay low and inflation would stay low for you know, you know, into the future, Mm -hmm. but it is an interesting quandary. And it also leads into something I've wondered. This is, this is just me talking about ideas that I've thought, but I've also, I've often wondered if there's a way there would be a way that somebody could figure out in the future where we could have governments that aren't restrained by money necessarily. Like the government could do whatever projects it wants without having to worry about a balance sheet on the back end of it.
0: What would Um, that look like?
1: You see, I don't know because it hasn't quite happened. The closest example we would have to that is actually China. So China as part of their huge economic expansion over the last three decades is that they have taken on lots and lots and lots of debt, but it's mostly within the Chinese government itself. It's books are secret. Nobody, nobody's uh, clamoring at China for how much debt they have because nobody really knows how much debt they have besides party insiders. So they're able to just keep loaning more money or giving more money out into the economy without somebody being like, hey, that's a lot of money. (laughs) So they're kind of able to act in an unlimited fashion to build their country. Now, in the United States, I know for a fact we would not be able to move to a system where the government's debt was just completely secret. That would never happen and could almost never happen. But I wonder if there could be a future where the public sector would be able to act in an almost unlimited fashion within the the uh, designated space that is made for it. So like it wouldn't be making consumer goods or um, we would decide, you know, does the government do the railroads or, you know, because some countries have decided that, or
0: yeah, what's you know, be able to fully
1: or not yeah, fully provide for healthcare or not. Um, that would have to be a choice that would be made. But if we, you know, decide what was government and lo- allowed them to act unlimitedly in that fashion, and then let the private sector create consumer goods and products and services, I wonder if that type of future could exist i don't know if it could exist in the modern style of economics and accounting but it's a uh, going back to our utopias i wonder if there's a future form of public governance
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting yeah i'm, sorry, I'm just trying to take this all in this is I don't have a lot of familiarity with this, but this is, this is very interesting information and out of the podcast, if you would send me some reading material on this, I would actually really like to get into this more. This is, this is kind of fascinating. Well, I could
1: so, I could get you on mon- modern monetary theory, but after that, that's, it's kind of my spitball.
0: Yeah, that's fine. Just the modern um, monetary theory. That's a good place to
1: start again with modern monetary theory. I, you know, it kind of gets touted as kind of the leftist um, new idea of monetary monetary policy, but even not everybody on the left or you know liberals or anything are all on board with it because it kind of seems like a bunch of hand waving, and then all of a sudden we have a bunch of money, um, and it all could fall apart at any point. <laughs> but yeah, it's an an interesting headspace. Because, oh man, debt as for a government, you know, if you're able to make the payments, what's stopping you? Yeah. Like, is there, we always talk about someday the debt is going to have to be repaid. Well, it seems like we have an unlimited term to pay it back in. Um,
0: Yeah, it would require a real kind of apocalyptic scenario for that to finally come due, right?
1: Yeah. It, it would basically require everybody who has uh, federal bonds, federal treasury bonds, to all one day show up and be like, we need our money. But even then, the government could just print a whole bunch of money. Now, that would mean it was all worthless, but they would technically not default.
0: Yeah, but then it, also it would fund- cause other issues with huge amount of inflation.
1: Also, fun sidebar: If we wanted to do something about college debt, or just jet debt in general in the economy, we could just make inflation real high. <laughs> and when you make inflation high, that makes debts are less valuable, mm-hmm. or they're easier, more easily repaid. So <laughs> we could just make money worthless. And then my student loan is super easy to pay off. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think any policymaker out there is uh, making that argument. But let's just say, you know, five years we have like 10 percent inflation. It would make. A <laughs> yeah. All this is to <laughs> say that in-
0: there would be other negative things that would come about, but it would accomplish that one goal of reducing the burden yes. of debt. Yes. Yes. We're not advocating Uh, for this. This is just a thought experiment,
1: right? Uh, We would all become debt-free because we would all have to have massively higher amounts of money to sustain life. That oh, these thousands of dollars—a pittance. A pittance. Sure, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back to you. (laughs) (laughs) It's like paying back. Oh, you want your equivalent of a dollar fifty today? Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's that's my long ramblings on inflation. A tool that people are often scared of because in the 70s and 80s, inflation was bad. And like I said, high inflation is bad. It makes life hard. Um, but it seems like in the modern era, for whatever reason, through technology, through monetary policy, through... Global trade, maybe. It seems like inflation has calmed, it's calmed down.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's still, you know, the idea of high inflation still would cause some problems, but it doesn't seem like a real beast that we're staring into the eyes of like we were maybe in the 1980s.
1: Like through the entire economic recovery since the Great Recession, there have been people calling the whole time. That we're just around the corner from high inflation. That, oh, Obama's stimulus package is going to create massive inflation. Or the Federal Reserve's very loose monetary policy is going to create massive inflation.
0: Universal basic income is going to create massive inflation.
1: I I still wonder about that. But, yeah, it's, it's it's a curiosity. Inflation...
0: And then we get into stagflation.
1: Yeah. One thing that happened in the economy once, and now they teach it in every econ 101 class ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Evan. So uh, what's our main topic?
0: Our main topic is Mayor Peter Paul Montgomery Buttigieg.
1: Uh, presidential candidate from south bend indiana mayor of the fourth largest city in the state of indiana and about the fourth place contender nationally and on every other day leading in iowa and new hampshire currently
0: and my 11th favorite candidate
1: oh man he's dropped yes he has hmm how about you uh, give some reason for that drop?
0: All right. So I want to start out by saying that there's a lot of things where I, I mostly agree with Mayor Pete. He has advocated for universal childcare and universal pre-K, which is really valuable. He supports some iteration of the Green New Deal. He has taken the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge and the No Super PAC Pledge. He supports nuclear power, a ban on fracking, he is open to the ideas of estate taxes, wealth taxes, abolishing the Electoral College. He has said comments favorable towards ranked choice voting. And I think he's got a lot of good ideas on criminal justice reform, such as ending capital punishment and cash bail and private prisons. But the longer that this process goes on, the more misgivings I have about Mayor Pete as a candidate. And the first of which is the way that he handles his lack of support among black voters. Mayor Pete has very well documented inability to show strong polling numbers with black voters and non-white voters. And to remedy this, in the first primary state that features a large contingent of black voters, South Carolina... He decided to secure some more endorsements from prominent black leaders. But the way he went about it was misguided at best and absolutely underhanded at worst. At worst. And he essentially sent out a mass email to a number of people who were on this role that his campaign had collected. And the email essentially said, hey. With this email, this is notifying you that you are going to publicly endorse Pete Buttigieg. If you do not want to do so, respond to this email and opt out. And a lot of people didn't read the email or didn't care about his email, and so never responded to opt out. And eventually, his campaign published a list of endorsements from prominent black leaders in South Carolina. And many of them responded, what the hell? I don't endorse Pete Buttigieg. And it was this whole snafu that was just about boosting his image and the perception of his campaign instead of actually trying to make inroads with a community he was struggling to reach. And that that bothers me a great deal.
1: Yeah, that could have been handled better or shouldn't have been done like that. I can definitely admit that that, you know, Oh man, there, there's been a number of things that have happened. So I didn't actually research that one (laughs) specific incident, um, that happened. So I don't have an effective counterpoint to that. I don't know if there is one, um, that could have just been handled better and seemed like an act of, I mean, at least as you describe, it just seems like an act of desperation than, Um, actually trying to make things happen where you get a little desperate and then all of a sudden you're, you're pouncing on things.
0: We could attribute it to desperation or perhaps we could attribute it to another quality that bugs me about mayor Pete. And that is seemingly boundless ambition. Obviously anyone who's running for president is going to have ambition. I don't think that you can, survive in politics without being the type of person who inherently wants more. But with Mayor Pete, it seems like the ambition clouds out too much of the other stuff. There have been reports, and again, these these some of these reports are unconfirmed, and you have to take them with a grain of salt. But people from his childhood coming forward saying that he's sort of singularly devoted his life to this goal of becoming president and has made decisions in his life down to the pronunciation of his name that are market tested to appeal to voters. And My issue with this is that if the goal is to become president and the goal is not to help the world or to advance certain policies, if those policies are in means to the end of becoming president. It's very tough for me to trust your motives. And I think this is borne out in several ways, notably the fact that he is running for president in the at the youngest age, which he is eligible. Come on, build your bones, gain some experience within the national political sphere. South Bend is the fourth largest city In Indiana, how can you jump from running a town of a little over a 100,000 people to managing a nation of hundreds of millions? It it seems like he is trying to take the quickest route to the presidency that the Constitution allows, and it's not going to be in the best service of the constituents.
1: But, like that would be all fine and dandy, but it does seem like there's genuine interest from a population that wants him to be president. It's not like he, you know, it, the Eric Swalwell's of the world where he decides to run for president when there is zero interest and, you know, has, uh, has, uh, an office that he can go back to where he can affect change in, you know, the national populace or the public. It just seems like, yeah, maybe he could be a little bit older, maybe he could be a little bit more experienced, but then he also has the enthusiasm around him, more enthusiasm than people who have greater experience and depth of, uh, well, I don't even want to say greater depth of knowledge, just longer tenure. You know, Pete, through his resume, he has maximized, you know, has a diverse background uh, in um, high level, high caliber meritocratic roles, going to you know top universities, studying uh, in top programs, being at top uh, companies in his small time out, being a, an officer in the military. He has been performing at a higher level than most people. Um, ever get to even some presidential candidates.
0: Well, I think that that opens up a bigger discussion of what what should the benchmark be to run for president? He's kind of topped out around 10 percent in national polls. And sure, he's beating Cory Booker. But does that mean he's an objectively good presidential candidate? I'd argue no.
1: Well, he definitely seems he's very capable. He's able to collect his thoughts in a way that is better than, you know, just about anybody on the stage. He seems to exude a confidence about his executive decisions. And it just seems, he just seems more confident than, you know, everyone who's below him on the, in the polling. I don't know if I agree with Uh, that. I certainly don't want to say that
0: he's not intelligent, that he's not accomplished, that he's not confident, but it doesn't seem to me that those are, really unique advantages that he has. I thought that on a debate stage, Kamala Harris could handle herself fantastically, even though she recently dropped out. Andrew Yang has a ton of popular support and now speaks with a lot of conviction on the debate stage. I think that if there was an advantage he had in that early, the gap has narrowed to the point where that's not a unique quality of his campaign anymore.
1: Yeah, it just, you know, when I watch him, it just seems like he's he's got it together. And, you know, with him also being young, he would be able to effectively do the damn office. It's exhausting. There is so much work involved and it seems like he's really up to the task and would be able to do it. You know, I get into concerns with, you know, like Bernie. I mean, hell, he's still doing his campaign, but he's like 77 and had a heart attack this year i just get concerned seeing some of these older people and mayor pete has you know it where he doesn't have experience he seems to have tenacity and i'm sure he would surround himself with people who have have the experience and knowledge to advise him
0: but how how are we going to guarantee that he actually gets those people around him. When you look at candidates like, say, Elizabeth Warren, or even a Cory Booker type, people who have worked in national politics and in the Senate, they have an infrastructure built up of people in Washington who can help them accomplish their legislative goals. Mayor Pete has not spent any time on Capitol Hill. He doesn't have the same foundation of relational integrity with the people who he will actually need to accomplish his goals within the construct of the federal government. He's he's a, essentially at ground zero there.
1: Well, you know, sometimes I wonder how much those relationships actually matter. You know, that's like Joe Biden's whole argument is that, oh, man, I used to have drinks with with members of the Republican party and we were able to get things done. And I just don't think that's how that would work. So I, I don't know, you know, I mean, who knows if the democratic party would just abandon him when he became president, but you know, it seemed like Donald Trump had no issues going with, you know, getting the party around him. Oh, but I don't he know. Did. It he
0: absolutely. That's what the entire Michael Lewis's recent book, The Fifth Risk, is all about how bumpy the transition was into the Trump administration because he didn't have the preexisting knowledge of how Washington worked. And you got to remember that for two years. Trump and the Republicans held the White House and both branches of Congress, and yet they they have now gotten stuff together and are, are changing certain things. But most of Trump's accomplishments from the first two years were things that he could do with executive orders. He never, it, or it took him a long time to figure out how to actually get legislative advancements passed. And then, besides the legislative aspect, there's all of the layers of appointing people to federal posts and making sure that this vast amount of agencies that the president is responsible for runs smoothly. And I'm sure that if elected, Buttigieg would have a much stronger transition team than Donald Trump. But to say that that it didn't hurt Trump not to have those Washington connections, I, I feel is inaccurate.
1: Well, I may have misspoke or maybe not meant that, but it it also goes into a deeper uh, critique that conservatives don't really, you know, if you have a conservative view of government, then the government really doesn't have to perform well. Um,
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, so fair
1: that that could be a goal unto itself. So it's not as damaging. But if he were to get elected, I mean, he definitely has the respect of the Democratic donor class, some of the elites within the party, and there would definitely be help to make all that happen to get, you know, the qualified candidates to be in these positions. I don't think people would turn away from working in a mayor Pete administration, you know, like they probably wouldn't turn away for most other people on the stage either.
0: It's just putting a lot of extra degrees of faith in sort of this nebulous idea of the process or the party coming to his defense and filling in his gaps. I'm not comfortable with that degree of risk, at least not when there are other viable candidates who I'm passionate about.
1: I mean, I would also imagine that, you know, Bernie would probably have issues getting his candidates pushed through the process. You know, if he had um, more left wing people trying to be in these roles, he would probably have to fall back on, you know, to some degree, the same kind of, you know, party insiders to get them put into these positions. So, but you my know, point I mean, being I, it, I, that
0: Bernie would at least know who to talk to. He knows the players because he has worked in Washington for years and years.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't mean that Mayor Pete can't know, you know, get to know who the players are. There are plenty of people who know things and would not want this to go to waste.
0: But it would be less efficient and riskier. I'm not I'm not saying that uh, obviously we know he's not incompetent. He would figure it out eventually. But the question is, how much would he be slowed down before he figures it out?
1: I mean if we want to go this route I there's no question that uh Elizabeth Warren is the best candidate on that.
0: I I love At Elizabeth Warren. I, I I can't knock Elizabeth Warren.
1: Well, there there's I guess that.
0: <laughs> All right. So let me talk about uh something else that bugs me about Mayor Pete. And it comes down to this idea again that he's sort of focus group tested and not really genuine. I think early in his candidacy someone told him hey people are sick of trump's divisive rhetoric so you got to you got to play nice and i remember on one of the early debate stages when two of the candidates were engaging in some sort of infighting he interrupted them and said guys guys it matters how we democrats talk to each other and we can't tear each other down and he scolded them for basically going on the offensive Well, flash forward to a couple months later, his campaign is sort of stagnated, and now someone's telling him, yeah, forget that. You got to go on the offensive. And so the guy who preaches civility and talking to each other is now the first person to be on the debate stage, uh, hammering Elizabeth Warren and using unnecessarily inflammatory language or attacking other candidates on the stage because that is what he perceives the people to want. He doesn't... I I, I get the idea that he doesn't have any strong convictions about the nature of civility in politics. He's just going to do whatever he wants and whatever he thinks will gain him the most support in the current moment. And that unreliability is concerning. And also the the meanness that he has shown recently is concerning in and of itself.
1: (sighs) You know, it just... Yeah, maybe he did go back and forth. Maybe, maybe he did preach civility. But we've also gotten further along in the democratic process that you know it, maybe it warrants more calling out of people of what they they have. Yes, it is a a, a call of uh, ideas, but at, you know if that just isn't, I mean, at, at some point I respect you know if that isn't working. Being the hunky dory, you know all things are good. Sometimes you got to change it up. And it seems like that changing it up is working.
0: But how can you Um, believe him when he claims this big moral high ground and then abandons it? How does that not erode confidence?
1: I mean, if it's the only high ground is calling out Democratic operatives, then I can be fine seeing that being the line. Like and
0: I don't know. And there Maybe are other I'll, aspects, too, where, where we're just already seeing less consistency from him than other candidates. For example, his, his big line that he loves is uh, if, if we try to do the big progressive thing, they're going to say that we're crazy socialists. And if we try to do something moderate, they're going to say we're crazy socialists. So let's just do the best policy and push forward from there. So appealing to the idea that we should just favor the best policy. But then later when they were talking about the gun control debate and Beto O'Rourke was proposing his ideas, which obviously you and I have already discussed that we, we were not of the same mind with Beto O'Rourke on gun control. But Mayor Pete's contention wasn't that Beto's policies wouldn't work, that they wouldn't be effective, or that they would violate the constitution. He said – we can't try to get tripped up and give the Republicans something to attack us over when we're close to accomplishing other things. His original claim was that we should just shoot for the best policy and fight for it. And then when it came to gun control, he said, no, 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 I'm not going to evaluate the merits of the policy. We have to worry about what the Republicans are going to think. How is he going to govern? What, what philosophy is going to guide his policymaking? Is it going to be ideology or or pragmatism i know the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive but he's he's taken such a hard line in each case that i i can't trust where he stands
1: he said he wanted to fight for what's the best policy and it seems like sometimes we get you know in this primary we seem to equate that the best policy is the most progressive policy possible so Yes, maybe he said we shouldn't, you know, call out Beto O'Rourke for um, for playing into a Republican talking point, making it seem like we're for something that we're not. But that doesn't change the fact that you know, may, it could have also been a disagreement because it not being a great policy. But he I didn't don't say think he that.
0: He didn't. Well, he didn't attack not, the policy. He never does everything the that he say. The policy.
1: Does, does everything he say have to be through the, po- the policy? The lens that oh, this is not the best policy going forward because he stated that we should choose the best policy. Yes. So everything, uh, every debate is like, you know what? I disagree with you because I don't think that's the best policy or this or that.
0: What, what is objectionable to having that standard? If he wants to be the candidate who runs on the best policy and he disagrees with the policy, it's incumbent upon him to explain why it's not the best policy.
1: (sighs) Hmm. maybe I'm not as good as at debate as I thought, you know, I really can't, you know, I really wanted to. What I ended up looking for, I guess, is, in the end, the biased version of trying to defend Pete Buttigieg, because I looked at uh, some of the um, events w- or uh, criticisms of him that I saw as being unfair, like that uh, that article from The Roots, or um, him being called out for uh, ringing bells for Salvation Army because they used to be homophobic, like... I don't know. I just looked at recent stuff. I guess. I mean, I've got more. Not
0: those things. My my list of of detractors or I guess uh, detracting factors from Mayor Pete is long. Um, we we can do. <laughs> we, you, we can. You, you have, we can,
1: we do as much as you you've want. Been, you've been much more engaged in all of this and have much more mature thoughts than I have. <laughs> um, that is definitely for sure because I have not looked at those lines of reasoning and thought incredibly hard about them. I just see a guy who seems to have confidence and you know I guess if I'm gonna be honest to my feelings, a lot of those um, arguments that you're making end up not mattering as much in my mind if I'm you know if we're gonna going, to, if we're going to be real and articulate you know these are, your arguments and they're adequately informed and you know, they, you can argue them. And then I'm like, you know what? Maybe that, but then also feelings. I know it's weird. This is what we want in a debate about the merit, merits of Pete Buttigieg. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And I just see him as a guy who's grasping at straws, who wants to be president so badly that he will bend and shape himself to be the president rather than taking a stand for what he believes.
1: But it, it also just seems like a, a lot of the criticism of him also like on his policies is that they're just not the most maximalizing progressive policies out there. Like that, that also gets me like, well, it yeah.
0: depends on the policy. I think that there are some really substantive critiques of his, <sighs> his rhetoric specifically around higher education and healthcare.
1: You see, I, I, I don't get it because yes, you know, if we're going for our utopias, I definitely see the argument of, you know, wanting to make college education free for everybody, but everybody touts his plan. Like it's just keeping the status quo when it would be giving free public college to, everyone whose family makes over under $100,000 and making, you know, trying to make it drastically more affordable for everybody who makes over it. That would be a drastic change in the status quo.
0: Sure. I think it would be an improvement, but I've got a couple of responses. Number one is that if, if he's going to be the guy who is always fighting for the best idea, if he says that the be- that's the best we can do, I don't agree with that. And there's a lot of people who don't agree with that. If he was the candidate who was running, saying, "Listen, you know, maybe maybe a more extensive measure would be better," but I think we can do this now. That would be more palatable. I think his messaging is, "I'm the smart guy. I'm the Rhodes Scholar, and this is the best." And that's not always supported. And then the other response is going to be that sometimes his justifications are inadequate. He's never explained why the $100,000 threshold is an appropriate threshold. I think that there are students who could have a combined parental income of over $100,000 that could still benefit from tuition assistance. And his idea that he uses this, this rhetorical backing that oh, we don't want to pay for the sons and daughters of billionaires to go to college doesn't really hold up because we're just talking about public college. So if a millionaire, billionaire wants to send their kid to Harvard, Yale, Middlebury, whatever, they can, they can still do that, and it's not going to be on the taxpayer dime. And the other thing is that it it ignores the reality that by having a cutoff, people can cheat the system. I mean, we're seeing this happening in the status quo. This is something that you and I have talked about with wealthy parents finding a way to give up guardianship of their children when they become juniors in high school so that by the time they're applying to college, they can take greater advantage of financial aid. And None of this is to say that Mayor Pete's college plan wouldn't be an improvement in the status quo, but it just seems like he's trying to shove down our throats that he's got the best idea and he's not considering the full three-dimensional realities of the landscape of higher education. And again, if he sets himself up as the Harvard Oxford candidate, who's going to do what's best for us because he's so smart. Then he has a responsibility to address these issues meaningfully.
1: And well, the way I see it is that it kind of, you know, it doesn't address all of your problems where it's like, well, yes, maybe he said he does want to fight for the best policy. And, but this, maybe this isn't the most, most best, best policy, but this is definitely something better and this definitely seems like something that would have an easier time becoming law than a full throated, you know, free college for everybody. So I, you know, do the mental calculus in my head and I see it as um, preferable because I, you know, I believe in the slog of liberal hisms, the slow bore of slow bores, that this is something that is obtainable in within our time and that would be a worthwhile policy goal to achieve. So,
0: and I think the other thing is that he's contrasted with such progressive candidates that maybe there's a growing group of people who aren't don't think they have to make that mental calculus. And I think if Mayor Pete wants people to believe in that brand of pragmatism. He needs to a vocalize that instead of allowing it to be implicitly stated in the minds of only some of his supporters and listeners and b advocate for why that strategy will work when we feel like it has failed democratic politicians in the past.
1: Well, I, I feel like the, <laughs> The reason why to talk about that being uh, pragmatic is hard because because then you start talking into the horse race about it. You're kind of talking about the cattle. It's trying to see what uh, the most moderate Democrat would support, and then then we get into the whole wow, man, all of this is only really possible if we win back the Senate, yeah. <laughs> which is also not likely. It's just uh, it's just a weird time. Like there's a high chance that the Democrats aren't going to win back the Senate, um, which means that basically any policy goal is going to be mute. Nothing's going to happen. So you get into this question of should, you know, what do we do? (laughs) What's the way forward? I think um,
0: I think the unspoken element here is trust. I think that you see Mayor Pete, and based on how he comports himself and everything about him, you trust him. And so you are willing to give him more leeway. I get it. That's how I feel about Bernie Sanders. But when we take away that assumption of trust, I think they're – are some very real causes for concern within the Buddha judge
1: campaign. Yeah. And you know, it's almost like I'll admit this even within myself, it's kind of like how um, a fair number of Republicans didn't like how Trump acted, but still went with him anyway. It's kind of like, Yeah, I hear those arguments on Pete Buttigieg, but then I also see him getting treated in ways that I see as unfair. So I want to go to his defense because I see those are unfair and then sign up for the whole package (laughs) Um, if I'm being honest with myself. You know, I see him getting dragged on Twitter every day for some dance his supporters did or... Um, That he's not um, gay enough or have the, you know, the sexual, same sexual uh, experience that other gay men have had or that his experience wasn't in the military wasn't valid because there's a picture where he looks a little awkward in his military equipment. It just it all seems unduly unfair to me. And I want to come to his defense because of that stuff that I see.
0: And that's a very valid and a very positive emotional pull to want to defend someone. And I I hope that you will agree that that my arguments against his candidacy have been more substantive than some of the yes, other they things you point out.
1: Yes, and, they have.
0: And I agree. I think that it is absolutely unfair to question His military service. I am absolutely respectful of his military service, and I would trust him to be the commander in chief. I think that he has that level of experience. That's not an issue for me. And I think it's unfortunate for people to attack his sexuality. I, you know, he's, from everything I can tell, he has been nothing but forthcoming and courageous in all of that aspect of his life. And another thing that we haven't – that hasn't come up yet, but another thing that I respect is that he seems like someone who cares deeply about faith and asks big questions about faith and lets that influence his decision-making –
1: you see that? Yeah, that's another realm of why I really like him is because he has been trying to carve out a space where um, people who are liberal on the left or, you know, Democrats or whatever can have a space where faith means something to them and where we can also be patriots, mm-hmm. which is something else that has just, you know, ever since 9-11 seems like. You know, we're at a deficit of that we're not able to be patriots inherently because of our political views um, in the popular culture. And that's another reason why I like him. There's no other candidate who's trying to stake out those grounds in those explicit terms. Mm-hmm. Um, I want, you know, I want to be able to be seen as patriotic, but also, um, you know, whatever brand of. Politics. I am Mm -hmm. liberal left, whatever the fuck it is. And that's why, you know, from the beginning I was caught when I first saw a video of him talking about that stuff, I was deeply attracted to it because that's what I want to be. That's what I want to have. And then again, I'm willing to make more concessions on his inconsistencies on other substance and rhetoric. And I
0: absolutely agree with your articulation of the appeal of that element of his campaign. And I'm sure that as a guy, he's great. I, you know, I'm sure I would have voted for him for mayor if I lived up in South Bend instead of in Indianapolis. And if he ran for something, for a statewide office, I'm sure I would support him then. But The bar, when you say you want to be president of the United States, is much higher for me. And I think it's much higher for most people. And he does not meet that bar. And his presence in this field, with this strategy, at this point in his young life, to me, feels entitled and ambitious. And I I wish him well. But there are a lot of candidates who would have to get knocked out before I would I would consider supporting him in a primary.
1: Yeah. I guess my uh, fundamental ranking still hasn't changed a whole lot. It's Warren, da-da-da-da-da, Buttigieg. <laughs> and then, then, like, Bernie and Castro. Man, Castro, he, uh... He's been struggling.
0: Yeah, it's, guy. it's weird because every time he's on the debate stage, I think he sounds wonderful. He he seems to be both receptive to new ideas and steadfast in his core beliefs. I I've really liked everything I've seen from Castro, but it just doesn't ever translate in the polling. He can't he can't hardly break one percent. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I thought that I also, thought that his support would go up when Beto dropped. He would get more of the Texas Texas crew, but it, it didn't materialize.
1: Also, I want to talk about this 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 big article that went around in the root, calling out um, Pete Buttigieg for a line that he said in a in a mayoral forum in 2011. Mostly because I watched the whole damn thing. <laughs> People only ever saw the 30-second clip, but I watched the whole fucking hour thing, and to see what the entire context of it was.
0: Well, why don't you explain and the the root article? Why don't you contextualize it? So the that?
1: root, so the root article, um, I have it here. It was written by a man called Michael Harriet, and the title of the article is "Pete Buttigieg is a lying motherfucker." Or just put MF, but, you know, we'll say the words. And it, this con- there was a controversy. He found a, uh, a mayoral, a South Bend, Indiana mayoral forum from 2011 where Pete Buttigieg said kids need to see evidence that education is going to work for them. You're motivated because you believe that at the end of your education, there is a reward. There's a stable life. There's a job. There's a lot of kids, especially in the lower income minority neighborhoods, who literally just haven't seen it work. There isn't someone who they know person- personally who testifies to the value of education. And the author of the article says, calls him out saying that he's lying and that he knows full well that that disparities in minority uh, education is not because they just didn't have the right role models because they receive less funding in their schools because of segregation. They live in worse neighborhoods and, um, you know, a lot of the issues that we've come to know over the last few years that cause divides in educational attainment. And, that is valid. Maybe Pete Buttigieg shouldn't be saying that minority voters or uh, minority children just need a role model, and then all of a sudden they'll do good in school. But that isn't really what happened. I watched the whole forum. This came about when this came about from a discussion of uh, South Bend businesses. Saying that they're unable to find qualified workers, and lots of people in South Bend being unemployed and not able to find work. And the moderator posed in a very small, t- you know, small town, local way that happens in plenty of Midwestern towns, you know, do these kids in general just need a push in the right direction? And, you know, that kind of became the topic, you know, of people, do they need role models? This wasn't even a topic on. Education in general, and you know, just talking about whether we need to push our kids of South Bend to attain a little bit better, have a little bit higher standard of, you know, uh, operating in the world. And funny enough, Pete Buttigieg's inclusion of minorities here, which it also seems like when he said uh, lower income minority neighborhoods, it wasn't saying. You know, those two things as an and statement, lower income minority neighborhoods, but more lower income or minority neighborhoods. That was the only time minorities were brought up in the whole forum. So that's that's what I learned from watching a 2011 forum with uh, approximately twenty four hundred views.
0: So it's it's more of a. An offhand comment that turned into a gotcha moment.
1: Yes, this, this wasn't his education policy that he was running on. This wasn't anything to do strictly with education policy. This was more just kind of talking about the kids in the neighborhood. And then, hell, even later, he brings up other variables. I mean, not in relation to race, but that um, family income family life and nutrition also have factors on school performance, which is another thing we talk about in progressive circles. So,
0: But you can see how it's very easy to buy into that perception that he would make an incendiary and inaccurate comment regarding status attainment and race when he pulls shit like he did in South Carolina.
1: You know, I don't know because that, you know, in my chair, you know, in the way that I see him, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like he has an animus towards it. I mean, he has a whole uh, program. He calls the Douglas plan. That's specifically about empowering African American students and children so that they can have a better outcome in this world. Um, it just, it just felt disingenuous to me.
0: And, and I I definitely see where you're coming from, but it doesn't even necessarily have to be an animus, but there's, you know, every politician, particularly democratic politicians talk a big game about uplifting minorities. But when, instead of working with minorities, he has already been exposed once as attempting to use them as pawns to gain support rather than actually working with them and earning their endorsement, it doesn't do anything to dispel this perception that he's out of touch along racial lines.
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely goes into the narrative. Oh, yeah, the one thing I did want to say was that It it also always just felt weird to me that, yeah, maybe it wasn't Pete Buttigieg who should have said that, but we do talk, you know, there, there is an active discussion where we say, you know, we need to have black teachers in schools so that black kids have someone to look up to, um, how that can drastically change their outcomes in lives for the better.
0: Yeah. But you know what else Um, drastically changes outcomes funding school districts adequately?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does. And that's definitely true. Also, other big notable uh, discussions in the South Bend mayoral race was um, the starting of a new high school in downtown South Bend. What to do about an overpass project. um, How to line the streets that go between the Notre Dame campus and the city of South Bend. It was very local, and it's just a small sound bite of a tangent that got picked up. So, that's, I got to say my shtick.
0: You thought I was going to go there, didn't you?
1: I wanted to. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean,
0: I've got, I, I think we've pretty much hit the... The, the most meaningful discussion that we're going to have. I have more. I've got a lot more prepared that I don't like about Jesus. this guy. But um, if anybody's interested in what else I don't like about Pete Buttigieg, email podca- podcast at adequatelyinformed.com or message me directly. We'll talk. We'll chat. It'll be good times.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'll also just speak, you know, since I have the platform and I'm speaking to you guys. But, um, yeah, you know, it, I, I can listen to those criticisms. I can acknowledge their validity and that they, you know, can mean something to them. And then you know, agree that, you know, we can have differing opinions. But, you know, I like to think that I hold opinions that other people have and it's it's often discouraging when something that i like and i see good in other people just trash on and don't like like you know the damn emotions man i think (laughs) if anything you know the the way politics is happening is just figuring out how we express our damn emotions and they're everywhere these days Mm -hmm. not to say it's bad but you know the more, the more people trash Pete Buttigieg on Twitter, the more I want to support him. Just plain yeah. and simple.
0: <laughs> and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and there's certainly nothing wrong with acknowledging it. I mean, we talk about things in very intellectual terms. That's kind of what we do here. But I don't think either of us has ever tried to deny the fact that an equally important part of all elements of the human experience is emotion the way you I mean, feel yeah. about something carries enormous value
1: it's it's no more or less real than the facts to you to because you, of yeah. anything how you feel is you that's you that's what you have
0: in our like facts, I, the, yeah go ahead sorry
1: i feel disappointed that my good friend evan that i hold in high esteem does not see this candidate that I like in the same way. Doesn't mean he can't hold that view. It just, you know, it feels disappointing. And now I'm making it about me and boo hoo my, my boy PD is getting dunked on, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and
0: yeah. as long as you can understand the arguments And as long as you are willing to evaluate your feelings and to change your opinions if it's warranted, there's nothing wrong with that. Because here's the thing. Someone can throw all of the stats in the world at you. They can make the best arguments. But that doesn't necessarily make you feel something. It doesn't make you care. And people only act. The world only changes when we care. And that is a, by and large, emotional process. And so all of this is to say, I feel very strongly in my analysis of Mayor Pete, but I do not begrudge you one iota your positive association with him.
1: Oh. And
0: I am the arbiter Evan. of what you get to feel. So that's very big.
1: Yes, yes, Very Evan, magnanimous of my, me. Uh, he is my uh surrogate. I go to him and <laughs> ask him, "Can I uh, can I feel this way?" He's like, "Okay, today. Today you can feel that."
0: <laughs>
1: um Oh, yeah, and there was another one where um a vice article that says Buttigieg's very uh, version of America is basically a caste system. And then supposes that because he lived in South Bend, the ruling philosophy of Pete Buttigieg is um, the movie Rudy. <laughs> so.
0: Is it a joke? So, I mean.
1: <laughs> no, it's a Vice article. That ba- it it's supposed that um, Pete Buttigieg believes that Rudy being a. So, you know, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm going off of what they (laughs) say in the article. I have also in the comments. I've
0: also not seen Rudy, so I can't even correct you if you get something wrong.
1: (laughs) So apparently Rudy is like quasi homeless, poor and um, unathletic. So he has to work a job, sometimes sleep in his boss's office and go to the gym. And apparently people think that Buttigieg in his college plan, believe that other people have to have a hard knock life. Um, Even having the uh, sentence, it's all very Catholic, an elite conservatorship over the poor. So, (laughs) so. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that seems like an overextension of whatever's going on there.
1: It's not, it feels like a vice article, a lot like a vice article,
0: which is why I think it's a joke. I feel like all vice articles are jokes, even when they're not trying to be
1: yeah <laughs> yeah the the uh, I love that video where it's like oh, I gotta come up with a vice article to write he throws the the dildo against the whiteboard it's yeah VHC. yeah 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 you showed thising that mean. yeah ketamine drug dealers <laughs> or, yeah,
0: You gotta put a so. link in the, descri- the description to that Link that video
1: Oh it's great Well I think that brings us to our end segment
0: It sure da, does
1: da, 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 da. So to our end segment We're gonna talk about the The big movie With all the buzz The Irishman Evan, thoughts? I enjoyed
0: it. I think that in terms of filmmaking craft, Scorsese is obviously a master. This is a movie that is three and a half hours long, but breezes by because it's so engagingly told, scene to scene, frame to frame. I think that we have some fantastic performances from Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. But I also have to add the caveat that it definitely feels like you've seen most of the Irishman before. You've got the brutal violence set to doo-wop music. You've got the the cool slow motion shots. You've got the themes of uh, Irish and Italian identity. You've got the themes of Catholicism and and sort of more spiritual fucking
1: Catholic
0: yeah so I liked it but this isn't a movie that really blew the roof off of cinema for me
1: movie of the decade like I saw somebody saying I think not but it was definitely a very good movie but also again if you've seen you know a some mob movies before You've definitely seen this movie for the most part. It doesn't go through some new narrative space. It doesn't go through new ideas, a greater depth of understanding. It's just telling the story surrounding Jimmy Hoffa.
0: Yeah. And although this is new in that it deals with this character, Frank Sheeran, it's still like Joe says at its core, a Jimmy Hoffa story. And we've already had, Jimmy Hoffa movies, so it's not even like this is uncovering a new chapter in mob history, though it's we've had our
1: Italian mob movies, we've had our Irish mob movies, we've had Italians and Irish people interacting in mob settings, you know,
0: yeah, and I think maybe it's it's expansive in its scope it's almost good did it almost feel like Forrest gump to you it's like oh now this is how our main character dealt with the kennedy assassination i i
1: have i have seen that comparison before where it's just he's kind of at every culturally relevant like oh yeah i mean uh, i guess we'll get into a a little bit of spoilers right now but so turn it off if you don't want spoilers yeah But he, uh, oh boy, he, he saw the Kennedy assassination, but he was also the guy who delivered the guns for the Bay of Pigs invasion. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, I guess this is quite a powerful player. Yeah. Yeah. And Sebastian Maniscalco.
0: And Action Bronson.
1: So many good
0: cameos. So many cameos. Some of them were good.
1: Just so many people. There are so many characters.
0: uh, There are too many characters.
1: They're like, oh yeah, and this is guy, big long Italian name, and then he's there for two lines.
0: Yeah, and then he gets shot in the face. That's what happens to Beansy from The Sopranos.
1: He's in this movie. (laughs) There are so many characters so easy to get lost. Well, no, not easy to get lost. It's just since I'm bad at remembering characters, I'll, I'll be bad at remembering these characters. No, it's
0: easy to get lost. Names. It's that's, I think an objective thing about this.
1: Um, yeah. but it's okay. Like, is it? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. You go ahead. Oh, no, I you just, go ahead. I,
0: I kind of want to move to a different aspect of this. So if you have another, uh, an end, a rift, riff. No. Okay. No. Um, so this is a film that was released theatrically and on Netflix. And on the same day, Joe and I both watched it. I watched it at home on Netflix and Joe watched it in a theater. So Joe, can you tell us what it was like to see it in a theater?
1: It was very crisp. The colors were good. I liked the cinematography. It looked It just, it felt, it felt neutral. Like a lot of these mob movies and when they're set in the past, they try to go for some stylized visuals and filmography. And I didn't feel that at all, which I liked. It was, uh, it was a good experience really, you know, had a real depth of sound design. Like there's at one point to build suspense, like if you were at home, it would probably sound like it's just quiet, you know, silent but in the movie theaters, there's these, just these ever-soft, like, bass, you know, humming. Like, ooh, ooh. like, like it was heartbeats, and you hardly know it's happening, and you can only really get that experience with a good sound system, like, in the theater. Um, for you, Evan, this is when he was, like...
0: Okay. Yeah, I can confirm. So my TV, the picture is pretty good. So I think everything was crisp, but I think that's, that's a fair analysis of the sound difference. Cause I, I mean, I don't have a sound bar or anything. So the sound is, is pretty low quality, all things considered, especially relative to a theater. Um, so yeah, no, I, I did not pick up on that. That was not, not the same experience at an at home viewing.
1: Yeah, it, it was so subtle enough that I had to consciously think, is this happening? <laughs> um, that's always a good so. trick
0: that a filmmaker can pull when they're
1: like, wait, is, is this really going on? Yeah, that's cool. And I, am I just feeling this or, yeah, is this deliberate? And I, I'm thinking, man, if I meditate anything, would I think of to do anything deliberate like that? That's the craziest
0: thing about watching really good filmmakers is the attention to detail because... I've dabbled in filmmaking. I made a short film that that played at a festival once. It it was fun. But to do a full scale, you know, big budget Hollywood production and to handle all elements of it, of the depth of sound design and visual design and to pull it all off. Yeah, it it, sometimes it takes a visionary.
1: You know, I think. The, the more I seem to, you know, you, you look at it much more closely than I do, but it seems like the people who are really able to make the best movies are the ones who are able to keep it all in their head. Mm-hmm. Like where it's not, Oh, we're just shooting a scene today. Oh, what's this scene going to be? How should we do this? It's like, they know what the scene is. They know what they need to accomplish. They know it, how it fits into the greater narrative and they go off of that. Yeah, the
0: Cullen brothers are notorious for that. They sort of meticulously storyboard. They wanna do very few takes. They don't allow a lot of improvisation. And there's always this, this legend that goes around that they have such a shared vision that you can separately ask them about an acting choice or a prop placement, and they will give you the exact same answer because they just can keep it all in their heads and do it together in a way that is sort of unprecedented.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's easy to think when you watch the final project, it's like, oh yeah, keep it all in your head when you've seen the visual product at the end. Um, but when you're trying to come up with something new, it's, it's hard to keep it all up in there.
0: Yeah. When you're building Um, it from scratch,
1: that's one, having one unified vision for the whole damn thing. That's, that's a tough go.
0: It's an art. It is, it, it can be an absolute art
1: and it is art. The Irishman is art, but then what is also blending the world of art and science in uh, So this week, uh, Kamala Harris dropped out of the 2020 uh, Democratic primary. So in respect to her dropping out, we are going to go through what is called the oddly specific Kamala Harris policy generator. And we are going to list some outlandish policies that sound like Kamala Harris would have supported them which was all spurred when she once had proposed a policy to forgive tuition for Pell Grant recipients who operate a small business in a minority community for three years. And it's sad that she dropped out because I was really banking on that. (laughs) So yesterday I announced that as president, I'll establish a health insurance subsidy program for cat owners who open a water slide that operates for 14 years in the great basin.
0: Yesterday I announced that as president, I'll establish a 1501 an hour minimum wage program for games journalists who open a Christmas tree lot that operates for four years in a moon base.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll establish a stem cell research program for tea party voters who open a theater that operates for three months in our national parks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll establish a social security program for men of color who open a Denny's that operates for 12 years in a flyover country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and this one may be coming to you soon. I'll establish a payday loan forgiveness program for former Booker staffers who open a ferris wheel that operates for 12 months in florida
0: all right beautiful beautiful programs all would certainly be very helpful
1: very helpful for the four people who were helped by the four (laughs) policies we stated
0: hey low cost fiscal responsibility right
1: yeah yeah programs for the one no new monetary theory well on that note i think that's the end of the podcast Want to thank Anthony Hish. Want to thank you for listening. Um, Want to thank Evan for being here with me. We do this together, so I don't know why I'm thanking him. But hey, Evan, I hope you've been
0: adequately informed.